This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia? Howard? What are we thinking about on this episode? Well, today we're going to talk about a new study about the increasing rate of cesareans in Canada, and then we're going to talk about maternal mortality globally, but also specifically in the U.S., and we're going to talk about the most common causes of maternal deaths and what are the best strategies for reducing them, and we'll review a good article from 2012 called 10 Clinical Diamonds for Preventing Maternal Mortality. All right. Well, there's a new study, as you said, in the Green Journal this month, February 2021, that I thought was interesting, particularly in context of what we're going to talk about today. And this looks at the change in the frequency of cesarean deliveries in nulliparous women in labor in Canada from 1992 to 2018. So they looked at almost half a million births in that time period of women who were 35 weeks or beyond in Alberta. And from a database, they found basically that the cesarean rate, the primary section rate for women over 35 weeks in labor, went from 12.5% in 1992 to 24% in 2018, basically a doubling of the rate of cesarean delivery. They also looked at confounders like, is this due to a older population or a more obese population? So specifically, they didn't find that age over 35 or that obesity were that important in confounding this variable. That rather, most of the increase in the cesarean section rate was due to non-reassuring fetal heart tracings or, or fetal status. The rate for this indication nearly doubled, and also a near doubling in the rate of C-sections performed while pushing in the second stage of labor. Their conclusion was that this near doubling in the primary rate of cesarean delivery in first-time mothers was not attributable to patient-specific risk factors, but more so to a decline in operative vaginal deliveries and an increase in cesareans done for non-reassuring fetal heart tracings, indicating perhaps a change in the way we interpret those fetal heart tracings. And there's been U.S. data that's shown that we basically have the same trend here in the United States over the last several decades. And we looked at data to see how much of this is due to women being older or at the time of their first birth, because that's definitely increased significantly. How much of it's due to obesity, for example? And arguably, those are minor contributors, but they're, they don't account for, by and large, the increase that we've seen in the last 20 years or so in the primary cesarean delivery rate. So I think that's interesting, uh, particularly in the context of what we're getting ready to discuss in terms of maternal mortality, not just here in the United States, but worldwide. That's interesting. That definitely raises some questions about why we're not doing as many operative vaginal deliveries anymore or, or why we're why we're diagnosing more cases of non-reassuring fetal status. Yeah, I definitely think that's something to discuss, if not now, later. There's a lot to talk about there about how education has changed in terms of fewer operative vaginal deliveries afforded to our residents. And also just how medical legal aspects have influenced the number of cesareans we do for fetal tracings. But there's also hope on the horizon in terms of increased use of the fetal category interpretations and things that hopefully can cut down on this rise in unnecessary cesareans or unnecessarians, as they're called. But for maternal mortality, we should probably define maternal mortality. And this does get confusing. Maternal deaths means any cause of death due to the pregnancy in the United States. 
In the most recent year we have reliable collected data for, according to the CDC, there were 17.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. Now, according to the World Health Organization for the U.S., they use a slightly different method of collecting that data. There were 19 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. That number, maternal deaths per 100,000 live births, is called the maternal mortality ratio, or sometimes the maternal mortality rate, or just MMR. And the worldwide average is about 211 per 100,000, with developing countries sometimes having a number that's two or three times higher than that. Now, it's a lot easier to count the MMR than to count how many deaths out of a number of pregnancies occur because some women have no access to urine pregnancy tests or ultrasounds to confirm their pregnancies. In other words, women die in some countries, developing countries in particular, and they don't know that they're even pregnant. But the MMR does still count deaths that are determined to be from early pregnancy causes like ectopic pregnancies or complications from miscarriage or complications from abortions. Yeah, one caveat is that It only includes deaths during or up to 42 days after the pregnancy. But we know that there's a significant number of maternal deaths, so so caused by the pregnancy, that can happen well beyond those 42 days. And I'll also mention there's there is definitely some variation between the countries on how they collect their data and report it in ways that you know, either their national systems or the international systems collect their data. And that could cause some big differences in those numbers that we're seeing. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. And honestly, a lot we don't know. The different ways of reporting maternal mortality can easily skew numbers to make some countries look better or worse than they actually are. And we can talk about that a little bit more later on. Although for a warning, we don't know all the answers. In a perfect world, the numbers that we have reported would perfectly mirror reality, and maternal mortality would be as close to zero as possible. The lowest rates of maternal mortality are currently found in Europe, in countries like Belarus, Poland, Italy, Norway. All of those countries report only around two maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. So I guess the question is, would it be realistic for the United States for us to bring our maternal mortality rate down from the 19 or so that it is according to the World Health Organization all the way down to two or less? Should we be more worried about trying to do better in the United States or trying to help developing countries that have a far, far worse problem with maternal mortality rates than we do? That's a fair question because really almost all of the maternal deaths in the world are happening in developing countries. The top five causes for them often are listed as hemorrhage, hypertensive disorders, sepsis, unsafe abortion, and labor complications. So let's look at the places with the worst maternal mortality. In Sierra Leone, Chad, and South Sudan, the maternal mortality ratio is over 1,100 deaths per 100,000 live births. In a lot of these cases, women are giving birth outside of hospitals, and sometimes that's by choice because some of them don't trust hospitals and would rather have a traditional birth attendant taking care of them in their own house, but others are either unable to get to the hospital or just feel like they can't leave their families behind because no one will feed them if they leave home and go to a hospital. But many of them physically can't get to the closest hospital, even if they wanted to. So so where does that leave them? For starters, no blood transfusions, no IV medications, no surgery. Some of them don't even have soap or water. So 
even though most births don't necessarily require any help at all, it's a problem when women develop infections or severe bleeding or severe hypertension or labor arrest and have no way of treating it. And you can see how much more life-threatening a pregnancy in general is for these women. And it's just really frustrating to think about how simple and how cheap these interventions are that they need, but how hard it actually is to get that stuff to them in a meaningful way. Yeah, they just have lots of basic infrastructure problems. Uh, Obviously, in developing countries, you know, literally no roads to drive on. In some cases, of course, no cell phones or no cell phone coverage. Uh, A trip that in the United States could be made in 30 minutes might take four or five hours due to the conditions of the roads, if they even have access to motorized transportation. So lots of problems and lots of well-meaning efforts have been tried, such as increasing the number of skilled birth attendants or availability of prenatal care providing clean delivery kits to remote areas, but none of these have really shown any proof of actually helping where it matters the most. There's This has been the focus of a lot of attention, especially with various global health actors, different organizations, and there's all kinds of opportunities. There's all kinds of temporary mission trips we could go on. I could go on something for two weeks or six weeks or, or even longer and go catch babies in a poor country. Doctors Without Borders has a lot of blogs about people that do this, but these efforts don't necessarily guarantee long-term change in those countries. Once they leave, you know, and go back to their home country, things often go back to the way they were. But anyway, Howard, the global mortality has been dropping because in the year 2000, it was 342 deaths per 100,000 births, and now it's 211. So obviously something has to be working. There definitely is. And if you look at just child mortality, which is death below the age of five in Africa in particular in the last 20 years, it has also dropped significantly. So a lot of that credit, no doubt, goes to efforts in improved vaccination and sanitation, water, hygiene, things like that. Because diarrheal illnesses and communicable diseases, dysentery, etc., still are leading causes of death. That means, in turn, a lot of real help comes in the form of some international development aid. You can't just go in and plop down extra hospitals. You need water sources and plumbing with clean water. You need power and transportation systems, food and medical supplies. You need medicines, lab and blood bank services, trained nurses, trained obstetric attendants or providers. All this infrastructure has to come together, and you have to make sure that patients know how to access it, know about your hospital, how they can find their way to it, and ways of getting there. The employees have to be paid enough to want to continue working there and to take care of their families that they might have left. You have to make sure that corruption and fraud don't bring the whole thing down. Corruption is a huge problem in the third world. Healthcare systems, all these resources brought in are just, you know, rife for pilfering and diversion. So there are many cases of hospitals, especially in poor countries, that fail at these most basic missions due to just corrupt leadership or corrupt local systems that will uh, pilfer supplies and medications. Uh, These things are pilfered and taken to the black market. Patients can be extorted to pay for services that were supposed to be free. There's routine employee absenteeism, etc. So while maternal mortality is obviously a top priority for obstetricians like us, it takes way more than just obstetricians to tackle this problem on an international level. It really takes a whole village, a whole government, if you will, working towards a common goal. One of the 
UN Sustainable Development Goals is to reduce maternal mortality in these countries to just 70 per 100,000 births. Efforts between the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and various other governmental and non-governmental agencies have gone on for years to try to bring us closer to that goal. Okay, so multifaceted efforts to make good hospitals, then getting the patients to the hospitals, which that's the idea behind something called maternity waiting homes, which are just temporary homes close to a hospital that women can come stay in if they live far away maybe for like a few weeks before they're supposed to deliver. Is there anything else to help reduce maternal mortality? Well, sure. I mean, for starters, just reduce the number of pregnancies. It's always more dangerous to be pregnant than to not be pregnant. Pregnancy is way more deadly for a woman than any form of birth control or even abortion. Of course, we're not saying the whole human race should just never get pregnant again and become extinct, but it is a good goal to reduce just the undesired or unintended pregnancies and empower women with birth control choices. Imagine if someone who's already very poor and maybe already has other kids to take care of gets pregnant and can't afford to get to a hospital for her delivery. She's way more likely to die than someone who just was able to plan for her pregnancy and get the care she needed. And we've seen that in the United States. You know, the average woman today has around two pregnancies, maybe a little less now. But compare that to 150 years ago when women had 11 pregnancies on average. The result of that wasn't necessarily that many more children because so many of the pregnancies ended in infancy or childhood mortality and so many of the women died young as well. So we actually saw real population growth in the United States when we cut into child mortality and when we had better birth control options for women and that led to a reduction in maternal mortality. So birth control is definitely a component of what's missing. That makes sense. Um, and, and abortion, as you mentioned, loaded topic and probably could take up a whole another discussion just on its own. So for the birth control, even just birth control itself would still help immensely. And then if, if we're only looking at barrier methods, they have the added benefits of preventing sexually transmitted diseases like HIV and AIDS, which is another big cause of death in a lot of countries. And we know hormonal birth control helps things like heavy bleeding and pain and preventing cancer. I feel like it's a plug for our last episode, which I guess you should listen to if you haven't already about estrogen, how it does not cause breast cancer. Yeah, it's a great episode. Back to maternal mortality. Sounds like there's been some promising successes, and hopefully these will continue to spread to the parts of the world where they're most needed. But what about the U.S.? Because we have good hospitals and we have good birth control options, yet it seems like our maternal mortality has doubled. If you just look at the graphs and stuff, our maternal mortality ratios of of either 17 or 19, depending on, on who you're asking, per 100,000 live births, we're still pretty far behind a lot of other countries who have it as low as two. It seems like Europe is the least dangerous place in the world to be pregnant right now. So what do you think's going on here? Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And this is a complicated topic. And I always would caution folks about these sort of intercountry or international comparisons. They're just dangerous because we do have so many different data collection systems. And we consider these terms differently. What's considered a pregnancy-related maternal death versus a not pregnancy-related maternal death may vary by country. In the United States, we hopefully would just be comparing apples to apples. And as you said, the maternal mortality rate 
say in 1991, was 10.3 per 100,000 per the CDC. And then you fast forward to 2017 and it became 17.3 per 100,000. So a very significant increase. But even in that case, I would caution that that increased number may not actually represent a real increase or at least as significant as an increase as it implies. We just started in 2003 requiring states to put on the death certificate pregnancy as a checkbox, and then it took a number of years to get different states to use the checkbox appropriately. And really just now, in the last five years or so, do we have most states collecting data about maternal death. So one thought is, is that a lot of the increase that we've seen in maternal mortality in the United States over the last 20 years or so is actually just due to better data capture. In other words, in 1987, when we thought that maternal mortality was at its lowest ever, around 7.2 per 100,000, it might have been easily double that number had we had better data collection. So we don't really know all those answers. In fact, for a number of years, the CDC didn't even report an MMR because they were so concerned with the different data that we were getting from these different agencies and didn't know what to make of it. So do you think that even if the the rates have been actually fairly stable, do you think that the causes of death have also been similar or that they might have been changing? It's hard to know, too, because we're just recently getting case-specific causes of death. The causes for maternal death for the United States are going to be different than for developing countries. And even within the U.S., it seems like they have changed over time. We still see hemorrhage, sepsis, and hypertension as common reasons for moms dying in the U.S., but these are all now eclipsed by cardiovascular and other chronic medical diseases. So more heart attacks and kidney failure and strokes related to pregnancy. We see blood clots still in the top five causes. These causes of maternal death could be what we're naturally left with once we've successfully eliminated some of the problems that developing countries still struggle with, like hemorrhage and labor complications, infections, abortions, and even just dysentery and diarrheal disease. But it could also be due to a changing population in the United States. The U.S. has had increasingly more women with obesity and chronic medical conditions like diabetes and hypertension who are getting pregnant, partly because the average age of women in the United States delivering their first child has increased by about eight years in the last 20 years or so. So that could be a big factor, possibly, in explaining why we have more maternal deaths than many European countries If we're just looking at obesity, the U.S. is far ahead of obesity in the reproductive age population of women, far ahead of almost any European country. In fact, the only other country with more overall obesity but less maternal mortality than the U.S. is Kuwait. So obviously looking at obesity alone kind of misses the point, but it's complicated and the causes of death are complicated. I personally think that the rising rate of cesarean delivery has probably contributed more overall maternal deaths in the United States, but we've also done better in other categories. So it's hard to know if the rate, the total rate is actually going up or if it's gone up just a little bit or or how much. It's hard to know which factors contribute to it over time because we just don't have a comparable data set like we have today from 20 years ago about what women specifically were dying of. But in any event, remember that Canadian study, at least in terms of C-section, they didn't find that age and obesity drove the C-section rate that much. And studies in the U.S. get mixed results, too, about how much that population differences have contributed. So if you're seeing people die of diabetes and heart-related issues, obviously hypertensive, obese, and older women are going to bear the brunt of that disease. Yeah, and we know that there are more women surviving things like cancer and organ failure and heart defects because of advances in medicine, and then they're getting pregnant and those issues are complicating their pregnancies, but that's still probably a tiny fraction of all pregnant women. 
and probably nowhere near having the effect as like the C-section rates on overall numbers. I want to mention that at least in the U.S., there are serious racial disparities as well. The maternal mortality ratio for Black women in the U.S. is 41 deaths per 100,000 births, which is twice the national average. And it's worse than the, the numbers reported for countries like Lebanon, Syria, Cuba, Egypt, and Thailand, whereas the maternal mortality ratios for white and Asian and Hispanic women in the U.S. are each below 15. The CDC says there's multiple reasons for these differences. They cite access to care, chronic medical conditions being potentially higher in Black women, and also systemic racism and implicit bias playing in. So clearly all of that is going to warrant some ongoing attention in our profession. And it definitely has been getting a lot of attention. I think that the Serena Williams story really brought some of this to the forefront three years or so ago. And so there's been an emphasis on the potential causes. There's a paper this week that said that even after adjusting for socioeconomic factors between black and white women in the United States, there was still a significant excess of maternal mortality among black women compared to white women. In other words, when you adjust for the neighborhoods that folks live in, the levels of poverty and levels of education and things like that, the difference still remains. I will say, though, and I'll put on the website links to these articles, In the United Kingdom, the rate of maternal mortality for black women, as compared to Anglo women, is four times higher. It's actually comparable to that 40 or so per 100,000 that we have, even though the rate of uh, maternal mortality in total in England, compared to in the United States, is only around 12 per 100,000. So their ratio is more excessive than ours is. So the black to white ratio of maternal mortality is not just a problem in the United States. And in fact, we're doing a better job of closing the gap than many of our European countries are, at least in terms of the ratio. All right. Um, Speaking about different countries, we talked a little bit about the different types of reporting between different countries. I just wanted to list for our listeners some of the countries that the World Bank says are doing better than us. We already said Italy, Norway, Belgium. So here's a few others. Belarus, Poland, Turkmenistan, Slovenia, Lithuania, Serbia, Albania, Russia, Turkey, Iran, Tajikistan, and Saudi Arabia. So do you think that this is, that these are apples to apples, like within the U.S.? Or maybe maybe there's some differences in how these are picked up and reported? Yeah, I definitely do. I'll put a link to an article I wrote called 10 Things I've Learned About Maternal Mortality. So it's just a difficult comparison. As I said early, these international comparisons, there's so much variation in the way the data is collected locally and how the death certificates are filled out about how practitioners think of death related to pregnancy. So what I mean by that specifically is let's say a woman dies of a drug overdose on postpartum day 41. In one of those countries you listed, that may or may not be listed as a maternal death, whereas in the United States, we're going to do a really good job of at least capturing those deaths and listing it as a maternal death. So I think I actually want to go through the 10 points in that article quickly. And the first one was that, yes, maternal mortality isn't quite as bad as it seems in terms of at least getting worse in the United States. And in there, I focus on my own state. 
in my own state between 1999 and 2011, before we had a better data collection system, the raw number of maternal deaths in Tennessee was just about 10 per year that were considered pregnancy-related deaths. And then after we started collecting better data, that number doubled to tripled and has been consistently higher since then. We had six maternal pregnancy-related deaths in 2012, and the very next year we had 30, and we've sustained that higher rate since we've had better data collection systems. So that that's a question of just better data collection. The rate of U.S. maternal mortality is not necessarily an increasing burden. We've just been ignoring it, and now we're reporting it better. The second point I made is that, yes, maternal mortality is bad, and it's probably getting worse, and we don't really know why it's gotten worse. And again, in my own state in Tennessee, the leading causes of women dying in general were accidents, but interpartum women still die of hemorrhage and preeclampsia and amniotic fluid embolisms, pulmonary embolisms, ectopic pregnancies, infections, but also assault and intimate partner violence. And is assault and intimate partner violence pregnancy attributable or not? What about drug overdose deaths? We know that women are more vulnerable to intimate partner violence when they're pregnant or in the postpartum period, more vulnerable really than at any other time in their life. Cancer deaths and some of these cancer deaths that we see in pregnancies are related to delayed diagnosis or delayed treatment because the woman was pregnant. Suicides, heart disease, respiratory diseases, and many other causes. The opioid epidemic is contributing a lot to this, particularly with overdoses and suicides and other mental health issues related to the course of the pregnancy or the time and stresses around the pregnancy. The fourth point I make is that the cesarean delivery rate has got to play some part in the rising rate of maternal death. We've debated how does the rising rate of cesarean section affect maternal mortality rates around the world. I think if you go to countries where the cesarean delivery rate is too low, like some countries in Africa, then you're definitely going to find that not doing cesareans is contributing to women and children dying. But on the other hand, if you go to countries where there is an excessively high cesarean delivery rate, you're going to see the opposite, at least in terms of excessive maternal deaths. And I'll post another link that talks about some of this evidence about international cesarean section rates trying to answer the question of what the ideal cesarean rate should be. But in some of these European countries that you've mentioned, you have very excellent maternal mortality rates, good data collection, and low cesarean rates. For example, in Finland, Finland has a 15.8% cesarean delivery rate, but their maternal mortality rate is only 5 per 100,000, and that's based on really good data. So lots of uh, variations out there. You can't just compare that 5 per 100,000 to our 17 or 18. It's a different population of women. But it's not reasonable to think that we should have a 34% cesarean delivery rate while Finland should only have a 15.8% rate. So we're definitely doing too many cesareans in the U.S., and I think that gets overlooked. The fifth point I make in that article is that an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure, and we're going to talk about some of those things in a second. We focus a lot of times in the U.S. on having just the best, most advanced technology, but as we talk about in Africa... Boy, if just a little bit of prevention of hemorrhage or surveillance for hypertension or things like that, it's going to make a big difference, certainly globally, and have the biggest and least expensive global impact on maternal mortality. The sixth point I make is that for every woman who dies, which is what we've been focusing on, there are 70 who have near-death scary experiences, maybe with ICU stays and advanced life support measures and blood transfusion and things like that. But it's not just about maternal mortality. It's about trying to create a system that prevents maternal mortality, but also prevents those 70 near-death experiences for those women. The seventh point is that most of those near-death experiences are preventable, not just in the United States, but in developing countries as well. 
We think that in the United States, 50 to 60% of actual deaths are preventable. And so certainly at least that number of the near misses are preventable. And the eighth point I talk about is that in the United States, we're doing things like the AIM program. Now, these bundles are evidence-based protocols for things like maternal hemorrhage and thromboembolism and reducing the primary cesarean rate, opioid use, treatment of opioid use disorders, things like that, as a way of trying to reduce maternal mortality. The ninth point is that doctors need to take more responsibility. We tend to always point the finger, but we have to admit that our induction rates and our cesarean delivery rates are too high. Our vaginal birth after cesarean rates are too low. We're doing too much antenatal testing, which leads to too many inductions and cesareans. And we've played a part in creating the opioid epidemic. We've neglected a lot of women's mental health needs, etc. So we have to take responsibility for this. And I also make the point that physicians who are involved in these cases of severe maternal morbidity and mortality, we're not always the best folks to know what went wrong. And we've created these sort of independent review committees in almost every state in the United States now, maternal mortality review committees. And these organizations are new and only three to four years old, where now we can have an independent panel of experts look at each individual case and try to make a decision about whether or not the mortality was preventable and whether there's anything to learn from this. We're still in an early phase of this better data collection and this learning and implementation phase. So soon, hopefully, we'll have more evidence basis to create new bundles and implement better strategies to prevent maternal mortality. All right. So moving forward, the more uniformly the data can be collected and reported throughout the world and also throughout the United States will be helpful. But I want to start summing up. For my part, I I just want to clarify the semantics again because they are so confusing. So maternal death is a death caused by the pregnancy or aggravated by the pregnancy, whereas pregnancy-related death is the term used for any death that's during pregnancy, regardless of, of the cause. Could be a car accident, for example. Right. And those are usually reported as deaths per 100,000 live births when we're trying to compare numbers between places. And then there's another stat that we don't really use, but maybe someone will see it when they're, if they're looking this topic up, and that's maternal mortality rate, which is actually deaths per just 100,000 women. Of reproductive age. Right. And that's not been very useful for our discussion, but some people might see it somewhere. So just wanted to clear those things up. But more importantly, let's come back to how we can make this better, how we can intervene to help save the most lives. Well, definitely where you're going to save the most lives is in the developing country arena. And the things that they need are mostly missing. As you said before, they're really just basic things, though. The United Nations made some recommendations on this back in 1997 together with UNICEF and the World Health Organization. And they said that there should be at least four OB facilities that can do basic OB emergency care and at least one that can do comprehensive care for every half a million people in a population. Now, the subcontinent of Africa and even in India and in other developing countries are nowhere near that level of care. What do they mean by basic? So the basic care facility would have the ability to do five things. And you need, remember, four of these basic care facilities for every half a million people. The first one is to be able to give uterotonic drugs. Specifically in their recommendations, they talk about intravenous oxytocin, which also could be used to augment labor. I would suggest in addition to this or in replacement of that, mesoprostol. 
You know, if you're talking about treatment of hemorrhage, mesoprostol is perhaps a better alternative in terms of cost and not needing necessarily an IV to administer it, which is way more convenient. No need for refrigeration. It has a longer shelf life, etc. And you know, mesoprostol can be used also to augment or induce labor as well. But you need some uterotonic or oxytotic substance so that you can induce and augment arrested labors or induce women with hypertension and obviously also to treat hemorrhage. Number two is the ability to give intravenous antibiotics. Some antibiotics are better than none, but ideally that would mean a broad-spectrum antibiotic appropriate to treat things like maternal sepsis or endometritis. Number three is the ability to give anticonvulsants. Ideally, again, intravenous magnesium, but other anticonvulsants have been used, and you can do some of that intramuscularly too. You can do the antibiotics intramuscularly. In theory, the hospital would have the ability to start an IV and give IV fluids, obviously, and so having IV abilities for all these drugs is ideal. Many deaths are related still to eclampsia and stroke related to hypertension and eclampsia in developing countries. So magnesium and the ability to induce hypertensive women is the key there. The fourth would be to have some ability to remove retained tissue, whether that be a manual removal of the placenta, but of course you may need some anesthetic to do that. And if you have anesthetic, also the ability to do a DNC, whether that's a postpartum DNC or a DNC for an early miscarriage or perhaps an infected aborted pregnancy. And the fifth would be the ability to perform an operative vaginal delivery, you know, at least forceps or vacuum. Now the comprehensive facility, on the other hand, would be able to do all those basic things, but also be able to perform a cesarean delivery and give blood transfusions. So it goes without saying that transportation also would have to be timely to get to whichever place has the services that a woman needs. These recommendations have served as a blueprint for improving access to emergency OB care throughout the world and as a main strategy for reducing maternal mortality in developing countries. These things are actually really helpful to think about as basic as they are especially as an intern trying to figure out like, where do I start and what do I really need to know really well? And it helps now, especially teaching new nurses or, you know, new trainees, these components of the emergency care facilities don't quite get to some of the other causes of maternal mortality that we've talked about, especially that are more common in the U S like we mentioned, blood clots or strokes are are not really addressed with these five things. Do you have any final comments, perhaps for the trainees listening in that are training in the United States or in another developed country for what else they need to focus on? Well, maybe not advice from me, but from two of the thought leaders in the maternal safety movement. Uh, There's an article I've handed out for years by Stephen Clark and Gary Hankins, originally published in 2012 that appeared in the the February 2012 issue called Preventing Maternal Deaths, 10 Clinical Diamonds. It's well worth reading, but I'm just going to go over and summarize those 10 diamonds. And those are the things I would reiterate over and over again with a resident or an intern. So let's go through them. You should definitely read the whole article, but I want to just give you the highlights. Number one, a pregnant patient reporting acute chest pain should always undergo an immediate CT angiogram. Pregnant and recently pregnant postpartum women die of pulmonary embolisms, and we have to be sensitive to their complaints in investigating and excluding pulmonary embolism for their complaints of acute chest pain and other pulmonary symptoms. This is the Serena Williams story. She had a history of thromboembolism before pregnancy. 
And when she first had symptoms of acute chest pain, she wasn't listened to, at least by the first nurse she talked to. And there may have been a delay in diagnosis related to that. And that's something that Serena has talked a lot about. Number two, a patient with preeclampsia reporting shortness of breath should undergo a chest x-ray immediately. Obviously, what we're looking for here is pulmonary edema, and I've actually seen a case like this recently, not from an obstetric provider, but a lot of patients will come back postpartum to a walk-in clinic or an emergency department. This sort of thing happens where a patient is not evaluated for what could be a potentially life-threatening complication of things like preeclampsia, and it happens in pregnancy too with these women. These patients may have pulmonary edema, and a person may listen with a stethoscope and feel like that that's adequate. But in doing so, they may miss significant pulmonary edema and significant disease, which needs to be treated immediately. I think both of these first two diamonds also have in common the idea that people believe we should avoid x-rays or CT scans or their excessive radiation exposure. And that's just general ignorance about the role of radiation in pregnancy. Women certainly can have chest x-rays while pregnant. And pregnant women can certainly have CT angiograms. A single CT angiogram is more than acceptable in terms of the level of radiation, and it can prevent a life-ending complication. Number three, any hospitalized patient with preeclampsia experiencing either a systolic blood pressure of 160 or a diastolic of 110 or greater should receive an intravenous antihypertensive agent within 15 minutes. Now, we could add to that diamond in light of current guidelines that short-acting nifedipine would also be consistent with the spirit of this, but the point is that we should be treating these blood pressures and taking them seriously, not ignoring them or overlooking them or accounting them to pain or, or some other rationalization and not treating them. We'll make those excuses. She's in pain, she's upset, she's whatever, and meanwhile we let her sit there with a stroke-level blood pressure. In most cases, people get away with it, but in some cases, unfortunately, these women can experience cerebral hemorrhage. The next one is, an angiographic embolization is not meant to be used for acute, massive postpartum hemorrhage. Hopefully, that's common sense, but there are cases where postpartum hemorrhage has been attempted to be treated with um, angiographic embolization. And postpartum hemorrhage is just not something that you have time to call in the interventional radiology team for, and you need to take definitive action and act definitively, doing whatever is appropriate, whatever that might be. Cesarean hysterectomies sometimes are the answer, and people are scared of them. The biggest problem, though, with cesarean hysterectomies is not the surgery itself. It's not very challenging or difficult, honestly. But the decision... People wait too long, in many cases, after excessive blood transfusion and maybe acquired problems like DIC. The next one is, any patient with identified structural or functional cardiac disease should get a maternal fetal medicine consultation. I think a lot of people are surprised that cardiac disease is now a leading cause of maternal mortality, or at least preventable maternal mortality. But women with a history of conditions that may have been stable for years, like a unrepaired ventricular septal defect or other structural congenital anomalies, they need special attention paid to that anomaly, and they need expert advice relating to the physiologic changes of pregnancy and how the pregnancy and the delivery should be managed in the postpartum period and how the cardiac function will be affected. The next one is, if more than a single dose of medication is necessary to treat uterine acne, you should go to the patient's bedside and remain there until the situation has been resolved. It's one thing to give a single round of medication when the nurse calls you with some acne. Maybe she's bleeding a little bit heavier and the nurse is trying to stay on top of things. But if they call you for a second dose, you need to go and evaluate the patient and not leave there until the patient is treated definitively. Acne may not be the problem, or it may have started as acne and now DIC is becoming a problem. She may have an unrecognized 
cervical laceration or other vaginal laceration that's bleeding. She may have retained products or blood clot now that's distending the uterine cavity that needs to be evacuated before you get good contractility. So you can't just give multiple doses of uterotonic drugs without a thorough evaluation. And I think this is a really great pearl that you should be at the bedside and you should resolve the issue if something more than one dose of a uterotonic is needed. The next one is you should never treat postpartum hemorrhage without simultaneously pursuing an actual clinical diagnosis. And this kind of runs together with the last one. People treat hemorrhage like it's acne, and it is 80% of the time, but 20% of the time it isn't. And if you're not thinking about and evaluating the patient for what the other causes may be, you may get into trouble really quickly and reach a point where your ounce of prevention that could have been afforded now turns into pounds of cure that may not work. Patients may end up getting disseminated intravascular coagulation. They may end up getting cesarean hysterectomies that they didn't need. So you have to think of hemorrhage as an event and you have to evaluate the causes and focus on a sometimes multi-pronged approach at treatment. The next one is in the postpartum patient who's bleeding or who has recently stopped bleeding and is oliguric, furosemide is not the answer or Lasix. You'd have a patient who's been bleeding, you've gotten through that uh, bleeding issue, and then uh, the resident gets a call many hours later that she's not producing fluid. And the worst thing you can do at that point is give Lasix. But that's a common practice among staff and among attendings too, as sort of a trial for testing the reasons for the oliguria. But this patient needs fluid replacement, who she's already intravascularly diminished, and the patient can get into really serious trouble if the pre-renal causes of her oliguria are not recognized. The next one is any woman with placenta previa in one or more cesarean deliveries should be evaluated and delivered in a tertiary care medical center, or at least in a hospital that has the ability and the staff to do cesarean hysterectomy. The next one is, if your labor and delivery unit does not have a recently updated massive transfusion protocol based on established trauma protocols, get one today. I think most hospitals in America have finally adopted this, but this has taken many years to get widespread utilization of massive transfusion protocols. But it can be life-saving at a time when you don't have the capacity to slow down and look up transfusion protocols, and also just making sure that your hospital has the ability to deliver the products necessary in a timely manner and in an organized way when the crisis is at hand. Okay, so the Thinking About OBGYN website will include links to many of the things we discussed today, so be sure to check that out. And in a couple weeks, we'll be back again with something fun. All right, well, I'll see you then. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.